satisfying in our heart and soul as that song the kids sang this morning. What a great song of this divine romance of a God who wants to satisfy us deep in the depths of our heart. Lord, give us a picture of what that looks like and really the great gift you have for us. We just ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, this is a familiar story, the, the story of the, uh, the woman at the well as it's commonly known. Uh, uh, great contrast with the story of John chapter 3. And at the end of actually John chapter 2, if you remember, Jesus says these very, uh, or John actually speaks of Jesus, these profound words. It says, uh, because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem and at the Passover celebration, many people believed that he was indeed the Messiah. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew what people were really like. No one, had, no one needed to tell Jesus about human nature. And it's interesting in John chapters 3 and then in John chapter 4, uh, we see Jesus encountering people where he sees through them. Uh, he's got like x-ray vision. He sees deep into their heart and soul. And uh, they come to Jesus or encounter Jesus. And Jesus pierces to the deepest heart of their life and uh, really exposes them to the light. And, uh, and that's a great theme in John, that the light has come into the world and uh, it's a light that doesn't only shine on the outside, but it shines on the inside like x-ray vision and it exposes where people really are. And Jesus does that for Nicodemus, who thought he was this great religious teacher and, and this guy who knew all about everything. And, God, and Jesus shows that he really doesn't know anything about the truth of life, about what it means to be born again and have life in God. Uh, then Jesus comes to John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman in the same way. Jesus is showing that uh, you know, he can read people's resumes before they've written it. He knows their whole story. And uh, the question for us this morning is, you know, Jesus, when he looks at your life, he knows the whole story. You know, If you're a student, your parents, they may not know the whole story. You may not want them to know the whole story. Um, if you are here and you know, there are things about your life, you may not want your boss to know your whole story. Uh, you may not want your spouse to know your whole story. But Jesus knows the whole story about you. And if he were here this morning and he uh, shone his light into your heart and life, uh, would you be comfortable with that, first of all? Uh, what would he see? What would his light expose? 
And then the real question is, what would Jesus say to that? What would Jesus, what would be his response or his answer to what he sees in our heart and life? Well, we get a great picture of that in this story of the woman at the well. And uh, let's read, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus heard that Jesus is baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So, he left Judea to return to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well, actually, Literally, he sat on the well uh, about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone to the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who I am, you would be asking me and I would give you living water. Um, Jesus has been baptizing in a region north of Jerusalem uh, with his disciples. Uh, Likely not yet his full contingent of 12 disciples. Uh, John records some of Jesus' earliest ministry. Most of the the Synoptic Gospels really pick Jesus' ministry up after this point in time, after he goes to Galilee. So all that we've been seeing so far really is unique to the Gospel of John. And uh, we find that Jesus was near where John the Baptist was baptizing. Uh, He was there hanging out with his disciples, baptizing, teaching. And uh, uh, word gets out, it may be that this was around the time of John the Baptist's arrest. And uh, word is out that Jesus is also there and Jesus is not ready to be arrested yet. He's not, his time has not yet come. And so he uh, decides to head, head out of Dodge, um, move farther north, return to Galilee, and resume his ministry in Galilee. And uh, so in order to do that, he's probably ministering actually very near the, the border of Samaria. And so he takes the most direct route through Samaria to Galilee. Uh, as you may know, Samaria, some Samaritans, were longtime enemies of the Jews. Uh, not because they weren't Jewish, but because they were only partly Jewish. And uh, way back in 700 BC, when the northern kingdom was attacked by the Assyrians, uh, they drug off uh, a lot of Jewish people and brought in people from all over the, the other nations to live in the northern part of, of what was then Israel. And those people began to marry and intermarry with the Jews. And so the Jews really considered them half-breeds. On top of that, there were some significant theological differences. Um, The the Samaritans, because they were part of the northern kingdom, never really accepted like the whole Davidic kingdom. They didn't didn't accept David as king. They didn't accept the new temple in Jerusalem. Basically, for them, their Bible was was, was much shorter. If you were a Samaritan, your Bible was five books long. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They rejected the whole rest of the Old Testament. Uh, They believed that they were the children of Abraham and Moses, and that's as far as the story went. Uh, And they rejected 
all the prophets, all the kingdom of David, they rejected the temple in Jerusalem. And they really went back to the Pentateuch, to Moses, and the writings of Moses, to Abraham. And they said, look, the first place when Abraham came to the promised land that God gave to him, the first place he set up a temple and worshipped was right here at Mount Gerizim, uh, near, uh, near this very well where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. And so they built a temple there, they worshipped there. Uh, as an act of diplomacy, and you know the Jews are very good with diplomacy to this day, they're masters at it, great peacemakers. In that spirit, in 128 BC, the, the Jews marched up to Samaria, completely destroyed the temple at Gerizim, burned everything to the ground, and drug off and killed all the priests. You know, great move for peace, great way to build brotherly love, right? You just destroy their temple and, you know, level it to the ground. Well, those were some of the feelings and some of the resentment, some of the anger and bitterness that existed of the Samaritans towards the Jews. Uh, the Jews considered the Samaritans totally unclean. And uh, when, when the woman says, you know, the Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans, literally that word that's used there is, the Jews won't share dishes with the Samaritans. That's literally what it says. They won't share dishes. And that was literally true. The Jews would not think of eating off a plate or drinking out of a cup that a Samaritan dog had touched because it would be unclean. Okay, so that's kind of the, uh, the backdrop to this story. Uh, the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews uh, believed that the Samaritans were unclean and vile creatures, uh, somehow less than human. Uh, oftentimes the Jews, not, not always, you know, the, the bottom line is people say that Jews never went through Samaria, through Samaria. The reality is the Jews were as lazy as we were. And if you were in a hurry and wanted to take the shortest route, you would go through Samaria. You would just be very careful not to touch anything, okay, except for the path. Um, Oftentimes, to avoid all that, they would go the long way all the way around uh, to avoid going through Samaria. That's how much they detested it. And so we get this scene where Jesus comes to this well, this well that had been dug by Jacob, a very, very old well. Uh, Many things in Israel and in Judea, even at the time of Jesus, it was already a very old land. People had been living there for several thousand years. And so cities changed, cities moved. the city of Sychar, actually, they don't know, they can't find it, it's, it's long since gone. But one thing that never moved, and one thing that never changed, were the wells. And in fact, you can go to that well today, that very same well, it's documented well, it's, it's uh, undisputed as the, as the well that jo- Jacob dug, that he drank from, still there to this day, and it was the well that Jesus came to. And the wells in those, they had a like you see in pictures, had kind of a rock wall around the outside of the well so people, small children and animals wouldn't fall into it. And it says that Jesus came and he sat on the well. It was about noon of the day, it was hot. Interesting glimpse into Jesus. Uh, John very much (coughs) emphasizes and stresses the divinity of Jesus, that he was God, all-powerful Son of God, uh, God come to earth. But he also gives us some great glimpse of Jesus' humanity, and here's one of them. Jesus comes and it says he is exhausted. The word that's used there has the idea of just worn out. He's been hiking in the hot sun. It's been a hot day. He's been ministering. Uh, he is fatigued and worn out. And he says to his disciples, you know, you guys go buy food. I'm just going to sit out here at the well in the hot sun uh, in the desert and rest. And so he sits down on this well and about noonday this Samaritan woman comes to get water, and here's this guy sitting on the well. Uh, 
So she has to encounter him. And um, Jesus amazingly crosses huge cultural barriers to meet this woman. And uh, he does that simply by speaking to her. But you know, with this history in mind, you've got to understand that for Jesus to speak to this woman was huge. Was huge. You just didn't do it. In that day and that age, it's a little hard for us to comprehend this, but basically in that day and in that age, if you were a single man, you really never talked to a single woman, especially if you were in a secluded situation like this. You would not speak to a woman. Okay, that's why they had to have arranged marriages, because boys and girls never talked. So you had to have your parents arrange this, because otherwise it just would never happen. Uh, so that's one obstacle that Jesus had to overcome. Uh, if that wasn't bad enough, this was a Jew, and she was a Samaritan. Uh, as, the, as the woman attests, Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. They don't talk to Samaritans. They don't look at Samaritans. Uh, and yet Jesus talks to her. Uh, not only that, but Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, a righteous person, a very godly person who, uh, who followed the law of Judaism. This woman, as we find out later, is a, is a lady with a very shady past. She is not a pure vessel. She is very, she's got a troubled, messed up life. Uh, a lot of sin in her life. A lot of reasons to keep distance from her. And we could say, well, Jesus didn't know. But we know, as the story unfolds, that Jesus did know about her. He knew everything. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus puts aside all the barriers, puts aside all the culture, and he talks to her. And not only does he talk to her, but he actually asks her for a drink. Uh, he says, you know, will you, would, you get, would you get me a drink? Jesus didn't have a, a vessel. This well was 100 feet deep, so it would have been a long crawl down to get a drink. And she says, he says, you know, can you please get me a drink? Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus go to all this effort to break through these barriers? Why would he take this huge risk to do what was culturally very unacceptable? You know, we all live in Asia. Uh, most of us don't come from Asia, so we're very sensitive to some of these cultural issues. And, uh, you know, there are certain things we know in Thai culture you don't do, uh, or you do at great peril. And, uh, you know, when I first came here, everybody said, you know, be very careful about these things. You know, don't, don't touch people on the head. It's a huge insult. You know, if there's a group of people, you don't just walk between two people. That's very rude. All these things. You don't point your feet. Very rude. Well, Jesus does. I mean, Jesus breaks the cultural, these cultural taboos in a big way. Why does he do that? Well, on one hand, you could say he did it because he was thirsty. And it's true he was thirsty. But it becomes very clear that the real reason Jesus does this is not for his own thirst, but because he identifies the thirst of this lady. And it's very ironic. Jesus is the one sitting in the hot sun, weary and tired. But as the story unfolds, we see that really it's the woman who's thirsty. It is really the woman who is in desperate need of a drink. And Jesus confronts her and engages her, ultimately not really to ask for water, but to give water. And to give this thirsty soul a drink of life. Uh, it's amazing that God does that for us. You know, all of us really are, are coming from a place where, like the Samaritan woman, there are lots of reasons why God could ignore us. There are lots of reasons why God could turn his face away and walk away from us because we're not worthy. But he doesn't do that, does he? He comes to us and he extends to us uh, a drink. And uh, Jesus says uh, really an amazing thing to her. He says, 
You know, she, the, the, the lady's going, what, what are you thinking? Why are you asking me? What's wrong with you? And Jesus says this amazing word. He says, if you only knew the gift God has for you, if you only knew the gift of God and who it was that's speaking to you, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. Uh, it really is, this story really is amazing. And this woman later on in the story alludes to uh, this being Jacob's well. She makes it very clear that she's proud to be an ancestor of Jacob, that, uh, that she holds on to this very old tradition of Jacob. And uh, she basically says to Jesus, you know, how could you possibly be greater than Jacob? The interesting thing is when you kind of see the humor and irony of this story, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three had personal encounters where God came and met them face to face. And uh, this woman would have acknowledged, would have recognized uh, Jacob as being one who had encountered God face to face as a living person. And the amazing thing is in this story, here's this woman encountering that same God face to face, but she doesn't know it. She is experiencing what Jacob experienced, face to face meeting with God in the form of Jesus Christ. But she's clueless to it. She's oblivious to who this guy is. And Jesus basically states two things that you need to know. Two things that you have to know. First of all, he says, if you only knew the gift that God has for you, if you only knew what God really wanted to offer you, and secondly, if you only really knew who I am, if you only really knew the truth about Jesus, the Messiah, you would be asking me for living water. Uh, the phrase or the expression living water in that day uh, really meant uh, it was used to describe a spring that was running. Okay, if, if you were to say living water wasn't an expression that Jesus made up, it would have described a well that was flowing continually, a spring or a river. Uh, in uh, a very dry and arid land, those things were extremely rare uh, to find a spring that just bubbled and flowed all the time. Uh, this well happened to be, it's described as both a well and a living, a living well, it, it was 100 foot deep, but apparently it tapped into a flowing spring. Uh, and so Jesus, on the one hand, as she understands it, is offering you know, this, this flow of water that would, uh, would, keep, would keep flowing. Uh, but of course, we know that Jesus has something much different in mind here. And uh, he says, you know, if you knew these two things, it would change your life. Uh, the same thing, I believe, is true for every human being. Those are the two most important things that we need to know the gift God has for us, and who it is that mediates it, who that gift comes through and by, which of course is Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, it's Christmas time. At Christmas time, you know, we love to give gifts. Some people kind of downplay that and say, well, you know, it's just, just materialism. It happens to be a good marketing. I will, I will admit, the whole gift-giving thing happens to be a good marketing strategy for selling toys and all kinds of other merchandise. But it also is a great picture of what God does for us. Uh, we ultimately give gifts not because, you know, Mattel can make lots of money selling, you know, Chinese toys that three months later get recalled because um, of lead poisoning. Uh, but it is a picture of what God is about. Uh, Jesus came bearing a gift for this woman. Uh, God comes and he gives us a gift. The, the reality is, much like this woman, we're not very good recipients of this gift. It seems kind of crazy. You would think, I mean, at Christmas time, I love getting gifts. I don't usually turn them away. I don't think anybody's handing me a package and saying, oh, I don't accept gifts at Christmas. I, 
I do take gifts at Christmas. And if you have something for me, I'll gladly take it. Okay, no problem. It's interesting, though, with God, how reluctant we often are to take his gift. And uh, part of the reason is that I think we don't really understand what the gift is about. In fact, oftentimes, we want gifts from God, but we want gifts that he's not necessarily offering. And sometimes we overlook the true gift that he is giving. So this is an important question, and through the rest of the story, Jesus really helps this woman understand these, the answer to those two questions. What the gift of God is, and who he is. And uh, those things are both necessary for her to come to a place of salvation, of life. Uh, to really come to, to possess in herself the truth. And so the first part of, the first part of this, what the gift is, is the first thing that he attacks. And Jesus is, a, is brilliant at this. He sees people, remember he sees into their heart, he exposes her life, he knows it, and he knows what he needs to do to take her and lead her to the place where she's ready to, uh, to make the decision, do I want this gift or not? Uh, this is an amazing example of evangelism and what it means to be an evangelist. It means to, to you know, an evangelist is a good salesperson who makes people not want to buy something, but take something for free. It's probably easier to sell it, right? It's probably easier to sell it than to give it away. But he does that, and he really helps this woman understand that she's the one that's thirsty. That's what this is about. Putting in her true thirst and a longing for God's gift. Well, what is God's gift? Um, if I were to ask you that, if we were to play Bible trivia, I'd ask you, what is God's gift? You know, what would you answer? Great Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? Jesus, God of the Bible. That pretty much covers them all, right? If you're in Sunday school, uh, you'd say maybe Jesus is the gift. What is the gift of God? What is the gift? Do you know the gift that God has for you? Uh, wealth? How many want wealth? Sounds good to me. Uh, long life? Uh, what is God's gift? Well, this is what Jesus says. Uh, the, woman, the woman says, the, for, for, first we get the woman's response. She says, uh, Sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Um, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? bit of sarcasm in her voice there. And besides, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How could you possibly offer uh, better water than he and his sons and cattle enjoy. In other words, you know, Ab Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were blessed. They had God's promise. God gave them this well. You can't get better water than this. Okay, this is not just any water. This is holy water. This is blessed water. This is good water. You know, it doesn't get any better than this. Uh, only somebody who's greater than Jacob could, could outdo this water. Uh, again, Jesus could say, if you only knew, if you only knew who you were talking to, Okay, but she doesn't. And then Jesus says this. He, he describes, really, what this water is. He says, People soon become thirsty again after drinking this water. Even Jacob's well. You drink it, you get thirsty again. But the water I give uh, takes away thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring welling up, bubbling up within them, giving them 
what? Eternal life. Eternal life. Um, that's the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life. And Jesus has this, paints this amazing picture. He says, the water that I give. He says, you go to this well and you get thirsty uh, and you'll have to come and drink again. But I give a special kind of water that eliminates thirst. You drink it once and it becomes actually in you a gushing, bubbling spring flowing perpetually. And the words he uses here are very graphic and very animated. It's kind of like a geyser. It's not just a little you know, flowing, little bubbling spring. It's really a word, the word literally is it leaps out at you, like a geyser. Okay, this, is, this is kind of, this is like a fire, this is not just a little drinking fountain, this is a fire hose. Okay, it becomes a fire hose that just knocks you over with water. Okay, imagine drinking uh, from a fire hose. I wouldn't recommend it. Okay, uh, but that's what he's talking about. This is not just a little trickle, not a little stream. This is abundant, overflowing, gushing fountain that wells up within you that feeds and satisfies your life forever with eternal life. Well, what is eternal life? Interesting question. Uh, an interesting concept and, and an interesting thought. We've got we to talk about this gift because um, I'm not so sure about this gift. Uh, when, I think, when I think back to things, you know, we think about eternal life as this. We, we would define it as life that lasts a very, very, very long time, right? Life that goes on like forever. Now, is that necessarily a good gift? This is, this is my early con conceptions of something that lasted forever. Like, when I was about uh, 10 years old, my parents moved from one side of Colorado to the other side of Colorado, and we would get in this 1957 Chevy pickup truck, crammed into the front seat, no air conditioning, rough, you know, worn-out, beat-up truck, and we would drive at about 40 miles an hour or something across Colorado, it took forever, okay? It took an eternity. Uh, I think the trip actually took about eight hours, but I was convinced it took eight years of my life. And we would make this trip, and I dreaded it. And I just, it was the most boring, awful thing in my life, okay? To me, that's eternity. And it's a bad thing, okay? There's nothing good about a long time. Uh, when I was older, I was in, uh, actually, was married, had a few kids, I had all kinds of, needed dental work, and uh, was very poor, was in ministry, and couldn't afford a real dentist. So uh, I discovered that in Denver, they have the School of Dentistry. Okay, it's where people are learning how to drill teeth. Okay, and they do it for free. And I thought, well, this is a good deal. I'll go have people who have never handled a drill before drill my teeth for free. Uh, so I went to this place, and uh, they actually did a very good job. It's all very closely supervised, thankfully. Uh, but these guys are slow. And you're in this, you know, turned upside down in this dental chair with your mouth pried open. And every little step has to get inspected and verified. And there's like 15 students drilling away. And there's like one teacher. So the way it works is they drill a little bit. And then they've got to go find the teacher and say, okay, how's this look? And he goes, uh, uh, yeah, you've got to change that. So they drill some more and they go find the teacher. It takes an eternity. Okay, it takes forever. And, you know, it's not fun. Okay, these are kind of some of my images of eternity. And I'm thinking, God's giving us eternal life. Well, you know, that could not be such a good thing, all right? If it simply means life that lasts a long time, okay? And unfortunately, a lot of times when we think about what God's giving us, that's what we picture. Well, God's giving us this very, very, very long time to, you know, endure life. 
Um, but is that all it really is? Is that what he's talking about? Um, as Jesus explains this to the woman, he says, um, you know, God's gift is a good gift. We know it's a good gift. And, and clearly the woman misunderstood the whole point of it. And she's thinking in terms of physical water. Uh, she's thinking about coming back and forth to this well often. She says, you know, I would like to have this, this, uh, this, this eternal, this, this constant flow of wellspring. I would like to not have to be thirsty because it would save me multiple trips to this well. It would save me coming back and forth to this well every day. It would make my life easier. And, uh, and Jesus needs to reframe this whole thing. And for us, when we think about eternal life, when we think about God's gift, we need to think of it at a level outside of our, our daily existence. She was still living in the world of the physical world of taking trips to the well every day. Uh, she's thinking in terms of her physical needs, of physical thirst, of real water. And of course, Jesus is talking here about uh, spiritual water. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. And... Um, you know, as we think about eternal life, we've got to take it out of the realm of our daily existence. Okay, thankfully, eternal life is not an, an endless road trip through heaven. Okay, in, in a 57 Chevy pickup, especially, with no air con. Uh, it's not forever in a dentist chair. It's not forever dealing with life as we know it here and now. And what Jesus does so masterfully is he encounters people like Nicodemus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, is he's able to help them see their life from the big picture. Uh, to step back and see not just their daily day existence of the things that they struggle and wrestle with day by day, but they look back at what their life means in God's eyes, at the big picture. And so he, uh, he helps the woman um, explore this a little bit, and he does it with a very interesting question. The woman says, you know, I want some of this water. It sounds good. I don't have to, I don't have to make a thousand trips back and forth every day. Uh, which, by the way, we didn't mention this, but um, it, was, it was not normal or ordinary for this woman to be coming at noon by herself. Uh, in that day, much as today, people were, you know, the women would have been much more communal, would have been um, doing things together as a group. And the typical times when people would come and draw water for the day would have been early in the morning, and late in the evening, not in the blazing hot sun of midday. They would have done it as a group. And you see this when uh, the servants go to find a wife for Isaac and for Jacob both. Uh, they encounter people at the well, and they were kind of gathering places. And uh, they came in groups. Well, here's this poor lady coming by herself at the heat of the day. Why? Well, she was an outcast, wasn't she? As, we, as the story unfolds, we find out some of her history. She did not have friends. She was not somebody who other people wanted to hang around with. Maybe she felt a great deal of shame about her life. And so she comes to this well very alone, very isolated, very cut off from the very community that she lives in. And uh, so maybe for a lot of reasons, she would like to not have to come to this well so often uh, and face the pain of her own isolation. And so Jesus says a very interesting thing. So here's the picture. They're having this water, they're having this discussion about water. And Jesus randomly drops this weird question. Jesus says, hey, why don't you go fetch your husband? Okay, this is just really, now, you know, Jesus knows what's going on here. This is a cruel question. Okay, this is just plain cruel. Uh, you know, why don't you go get your husband? He says, well, I don't have one. 
And Jesus says, you do speak the truth. Uh, you speak, in fact, it's, uh, in the Greek it's very humorous. He says, you know, you speak, you speak extremely well. The word there means to speak something excellently. You speak excellently about your situation because you have actually had five husbands and the one you live with now is, you're not even married to. Now, of course, in, in Jewish culture in that time and day and age, they were allowed to divorce, but the rabbis, who were pretty liberal on this, who would allow divorce, said a woman could get divorced two times, maximum three times. And then, three, you know, basically three strikes and you're out. No more, no more divorces, no more getting married. This woman had been married five times, and uh, the guy she's living with now, she's living with this guy, they're not even married, they're just living together. And Jesus, in a very kind of light and humorous way, says, you know, you speak, you speak very true. And uh, um, the woman quick, quickly changes subjects. Uh, why does Jesus ask that question? I mean, it seems really to be kind of cruel and heartless. Why does Jesus bring this up? Why, what, is, what is the relevance of this in this whole, this whole scenario, seeking eternal life, seeking this eternal water? Well, I really believe that Jesus is trying to move her step by step closer to the real state and condition of her own thirsty soul. Uh, her own pursuit of what eternal life is. And the reality is, whatever we think of eternal life, eternal life really is this. It's being in a state or condition where we are satisfied. That's the eternal life that Jesus offers. What eternal life is not so much measured by its length of time as much as by its continually satisfying quality. Okay? Jesus says this water that gushes up in, within you will make you so that you are never thirsty again. In other words, it is completely satisfying. Okay? It quenches every thirst of your life. That's eternal life. It is a life in which every need, every longing, every desire of our heart and soul is fully and completely satisfied. You see, Jesus turns to this issue because he wants to illustrate that this water well is not the only well that she's going to quite often. Apparently, she's going to the well of marriage quite often. And apparently, it's not very satisfying because she keeps coming back again and again and again. Why? Because it doesn't quench. Because time after time after time she comes back and finds that the water wears out and she's thirsty again. That it's not satisfying the deepest needs of her heart and life, of her soul. And so Jesus uh, opens up this whole area of her life and says, you know, what is it that you are really thirsty for? Let me just ask you a simple question to probe and explore uh, the thirst in your own life. Uh, we don't know, and, and the Bible doesn't go into details, and we could speculate a lot, and a lot of people have speculated about this lady's life history. We really don't know, and it's probably uh, dangerous to assume things about her life. It's possible that all five of her husbands had died. We don't know that. It's possible that, you know, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of scenarios I wouldn't want to go into. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that she apparently feels a great deal of shame about this. Later on in the story, when she goes to, to the community, she says about Jesus, he told me everything I ever did. Well, he didn't really tell her everything he, she ever did, 
But he got the main thing, didn't he? It got to the heart of where she was living. Uh, we don't know exactly what it was with her, but here are some of the things that, that she may have been searching or looking for through marriage. Um, maybe she was hoping to find happiness through a perfect husband. And when one husband didn't work out, somehow she found other husbands. Uh, perhaps she was trying to find a friendship and, and uh, companionship, which is something we look for in marriage. Perhaps she was looking for the pleasure of sexual intimacy, and uh, she couldn't live alone. She needed to be with a man. Uh, maybe she was looking for security and protection, or for children, or for the, the warmth of a family or a home, a sense of belonging. Ultimately, deep down inside, she was probably looking for love. Uh, she was thirsty for the love of a person who really cared about her. And whatever sh her mistakes were in this, whatever her fault in this, whatever the fault of her husband doesn't really matter, what Jesus is illustrating is, you know, you keep going to the well, but you are drinking from a well that can never quench your thirst. I offer water. When you drink it, you will never be thirsty again. That is eternal life. A love that God wants to pour into our heart that is so full and so rich and so satisfying that it fills us. And we never thirst again. Um, what are we thirsty for? Uh, if you were to look deep into your heart and life, if Jesus could look into your heart this morning, honestly, what is it that you are thirsty for? What is it that you pursue in your life that you think will bring satisfaction and fullness and completeness to your life? Of course, because we're all Christians and we're all, you know, following God, the quick and easy answer again is Jesus. You know, Jesus would be the thing I'm pursuing that's going to bring fulfillment and purpose to my life. But really, if Jesus were here and he were looking deep into your heart, what, would he, what question would he ask you? Uh, what thing would he bring up in your life? Uh, what well would he point you to that you are going to over and over again to fill some deep need in your heart, in your soul? Uh, maybe for you, like this woman, it was love and affection. You are doing things and you are ordering your life and you are putting things together in your life to bring love and affection and attention into your life. It is a deep longing of your heart and soul. And it's what you pursue with your time and your actions and the way you live your life. Um, maybe for you it's more on, on the lines of glory and honor and respect. Uh, you want to be respected. You want people to think you are important and significant. And so you order your life to get respect. Uh, perhaps it's just pleasure and entertainment and comfort. Uh, it's kind of the, the, the world of today, the Hugh Hefner world. Have beautiful girls, have an easy life, go around in slippers and a bathroom all, bathrobe all day long, and, you know, don't, don't worry about things and just enjoy, have comfort. Um, maybe you think your life would be good if you had those things. Uh, you see, Jesus opens the door of our heart. And he says, what is it that you are longing for? Are you aware in your own life the thing that you long for? Like this woman, every single one of us have within us a thirst in our soul. And much like this woman, I believe all of us are tempted to fill that thirst in ways that are outside of God's plan. That's what the world is all about. That's what advertising is all about. That's why uh, people can sell virtually anything because people are hungry. 
And if we make the promise that if you buy or use this thing, it will make you not hungry anymore, we will buy it. And people spend billions of dollars on exercise machines and on sports clubs and on, uh, on adventure and on excitement and on travel and on all this stuff. Why? Because they are thirsty. And they believe that somehow this will quench the thirst of their soul. What are the wells that we return to over and over again? What are the wells that we go to day after day after day trying to get our thirst quenched? Uh, for some, it is the, the, an easy one is the well of lust, of sexual pleasure, trying to find affection and love through, through sexual fantasy or through sexual contact or intimacy. Uh, it can be uh, a pursuit of somebody outside of marriage. It can also be a pursuit of somebody who in marriage, misuses it, uh, seeking to win a girl's attention and love or for a, a girl trying to find a husband who will worship me, who will think I'm the greatest and best thing that's ever been, trying to have the thirst of our soul met through that. Uh, and then you find yourself in a marriage or in a relationship where that person's not satisfying you enough and you are thirsty. And so you have an option, you know, to get rid of that one and get a new one who will satisfy you or just go around constantly being thirsty. And that's why divorce is so high, because it's much easier to, to think, well, the problem isn't me. The problem is, you know, my, my spouse is not satisfying, so I need a new one. I'll get a new model. Okay, this model's worn out and no good. I'll get a better model that will satisfy me, right? Uh, the, we may go to the well of success. Uh, people who are driven to be successful in, in athletics, in sports, in business, in career, in school thinking if I'm successful, people will respect me, they'll be impressed with me, they'll tell me what a great person I am, and it'll make me feel good. And I will drink from that well. And so they're driven to perform and to succeed. Uh, some people go to the well of praise and affirmation. Living their lives in such a way to really please people so they hear those words, wow, I, I'm so thankful for you. I appreciate you. Now, are these bad things? They're not bad things. Unless we're convinced that these things will really ultimately satisfy us. If these are the things we live for. Uh, so many people uh, spend their life being a people pleaser, trying to be popular, trying to make others happy so they hear words of affirmation that they think will satisfy the longing of their soul and their heart. Uh, how about the well of martyrdom? This is a great one. This is a great one for people in ministry because this well involves sacrifice, suffering, and really feeling sorry for yourself a lot. And so this works well for people in ministry because there's lots of opportunities for sacrifice. You know, you can starve yourself. You can go through all kinds of miserable experiences and really feel good about it. It's like, I'm so, I'm so abused. I'm so, life is so hard. I'm so mistreated. And hoping somebody will feel sorry for you. And it will do what? You hope it will quench the thirst of your soul. That somebody will care about you. See, every human being is thirsty in their soul. Like this woman, Jesus knows that all of us thirst deeply in our heart for something. But the problem is, we don't know the gift of God. We don't really know that the gift God has for us is the very gift that will satisfy us. That when we drink from that well, we will never again thirst. And uh, so we, we get our needs mixed up. And this is how it works. We think that 
these needs, these well we go to, wells we go to, are the big needs in our life. And we know that we have spiritual needs, but we put that spiritual need somewhere below that. And we work and we live trying to fill ourselves with those upper needs first for our own uh, affection, love, attention, respect, pleasure. Uh, and we put the need for our spiritual life underneath that. And we spend all of our time pursuing these other things, never really being quenched of soul, of spirit and heart. That's where this woman was. And it's not that this woman wasn't a religious person. In fact, as Jesus raises all these issues and raises all these questions, uh, she all of a sudden becomes very religious and spiritual and starts arguing theology. Okay? This woman knew the Bible. She knew and worshipped God. But you see, that was no longer the supreme pursuit of her life. It had become a side branch. And it was not fulfilling because she had not put it at the center of her life. Um, and Jesus says, if you only knew the gift God has for you, uh, the, the amazing truth and point of what Jesus is saying here is simply this, that God, God's gift of eternal life for us is to, is to fully and completely satisfy the deepest longings and thirsts of our heart and soul. What God wants to do for us is so much more than just save us from sin. And he does deal with sin Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin, but he didn't do it just for the sake of, of zeroing out our negative bank balance. He did it instead to bring us to a place where he could fill us with his joy and goodness, to fill our life in such a way that we would never thirst again. Uh, wouldn't you love to be in a place where you were never thirsty again? To be so satisfied in life that you never really wanted anything else. Well, you know, to be honest, maybe you don't want that. Because you think, you know, if God did that for me, think about this, if God so satisfied my life that I never wanted anything else, maybe I wouldn't want anything else. And I would miss out on all the good gifts that God has for me in this world. It's kind of like this. I have an amazing sweet tooth. I love dessert. I mean, I, I live for, like, chocolate and cake. The gooier and stickier, the better. The more calories, the better. And the more fat, the better. Like if you get sugar, lots of fat and calories all in one dish, it's like the perfect food, you know. All, all three food groups, fat, sugar, and, yeah, and more fat. Uh, and chocolate, that's it. Chocolate, fat, and sugar, the three food groups. Um, and I, 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 I could, I could live for dessert. I could live on dessert, okay. But it's not a very healthy way to live, is it? And uh, I could be, you know, and when I'm the most hungry... Dessert sounds the best, right? When I'm the most hungry, all that stuff can make my mouth... Am I making your mouth water yet? Okay, when I'm really hungry, like, like now, all that stuff, you know, you just think, man, it makes your mouth water. And you think to yourself, you know, I don't want to eat dinner because if I eat dinner, it might wreck my appetite for dessert. Right? It's like the sign says, life is short, eat dessert first. And that's kind of how we live our life. But with God, we think, you know, if I were to be fully satisfied with God, I wouldn't want dessert anymore. You know, if I eat a big meal, if I have a good, well-balanced meal of, like, the real food groups, like vegetables and stuff, um, some meat, some potatoes, some good stuff, some rice, Tyler got to have rice. Um, after I have been filled with a good, healthy meal... I still have my sweet tooth, but I don't need that anymore. 
because I'm fully satisfied. Now, if I have the chance to eat, you know, a triple fudge sundae, it's good. Oh, man, it's good. But I have been filled with a good, healthy meal, which sustains my life much better. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not that if he fills and satisfies us, that we can never enjoy anything else in life. But really, if he fills and satisfies us, the principle is that we can truly then begin to enjoy the things of life. Because we have been filled and satisfied first with him. That's what Jesus is is appealing to this woman. He's saying, look, I offer you a drink from a well that will so satisfy, so fill you, so fill you with, with God's goodness that you won't be so hungry anymore for jerky husbands that treat you badly. Uh, you won't need to keep going back to this well. You can dump the guy and actually be happy. And you know, for you, lady, that would be a good thing. Okay? To just be happy and not need a guy in your life. All right? And this is how it works. This is really what joy is. Joy is not an emotion so much, although joy does produce in us good emotions. But joy is much more than that. Joy is really a state of being satisfied in Christ. That's what joy is. Well, it's a state of being satisfied. Enduring joy is being satisfied in Christ. You know, I can be satisfied for a few moments with that hot fudge triple brownie Sunday thing, and it's good, and it is satisfying, and it brings joy. You eat that, and it's like, ah, that was good. But, you know, an hour later, two hours later the next day, you know, you need another one of those to keep the joy going. He's talking about a joy that never leaves. In fact, he's talking about a joy that when there are difficulties in our life, we come up against financial crisis and we don't have enough money and we're struggling. We don't stress out and flip out and freak out and lose our peace and start cursing God and wondering what's going on because we are satisfied. And we could honestly say, and this is, a big, I mean, this is, this is true joy, this is true joy, being so satisfied in God and so filled with God that you could say, God, if I don't ever eat another meal... It's okay because I am filled with you. Okay, that's true joy. Um, Most of us don't live there, right? Because we don't know the gift of God and we don't know what it would mean for him to truly satisfy us in the depth of our heart. Uh, You know, you're in a marriage and your spouse or your husband is just not meeting your needs. They're just not meeting up to your expectations. You know, they don't worship you anymore. They used to worship you, and then they find out who you really are, and they don't worship you anymore. Uh, you know, if God has so filled and satisfied your life, you don't need that person to be everything in your life anymore. If you're a single person, you think, I, would, I just would be so much happier, my life would be so much satisfied and full if I had a husband or a wife. You know, when God so fills you and satisfies those deep longings, you can say, you know, a husband or wife would be good, I, I would love that, but it's not... It's not a critical need in my life anymore because God has so filled my life. That's what Jesus is offering to this woman and that's what he offers to us. That we would drink so deeply from his well, that we would drink so deeply from his presence, that we really would be full with him. Uh, You know, if your ministry is going rough, things are going bad, people are criticizing you, if you don't have this inner sense that you're okay in God's eyes, that God loves you, and that nobody else in the world loves you, and they all throw rocks at you, it's okay. Because God loves me. 
And I don't need their affirmation or approval to make me feel good. Now granted, you know, when people give you a word of praise, it helps. Okay? It really helps. But if you know you have the ultimate word of affirmation from God, that, you know, you are with me, you are my child, you are walking in obedience, and I am so um, excited and blessed by what you are doing, it doesn't matter what other people say or think. That is eternal life. And someday that's what heaven will be. Heaven will be living in a place where for eternity we are full and complete and satisfied in God alone. That's why in heaven all these other things become secondary. And Jesus invites us, we don't have to wait to heaven to get that. Jesus invites us to take possession of eternal life now. He offers us eternal life today. We don't have to die to start it. Okay? Dying is good because when you die the needs of this body do become secondary, okay? Well, they become actually way below secondary, about six feet below secondary, okay? Um, but we can enjoy that life now if we will learn to drink deeply from the well of God's goodness and to so fill our life with his goodness and presence, to so know his love and his grace and mercy in our life that we are satisfied in him as we uh, turn to the time for uh, communion, I would like to uh, just close by reflecting and meditating for a minute on a couple of psalms. Well, one from Psalms chapter 63 and one from Isaiah chapter 12. Um, Psalm 63 says this, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Get this. Your unfailing love is better to me than life itself. I love that. Your unfailing love is better to me than life itself. Is that true of us? Is God's love so precious to us that it means more than anything it gives us life. How I praise you. How I praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest of feasts. You satisfy me more than the richest of feasts. I will praise you with songs of joy. Isaiah 12 says this, In that day you will sing, I will praise you, O Lord, you are angry with me, but not anymore. Now you comfort me. See, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. With joy, you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. In that wonderful day, you will sing, Thank the Lord. Praise his name. Tell the nations what he has done. Let them know how mighty he is. Sing to the Lord, for he has done wonderful things. Make known his praise around the world. Let the people of Jerusalem shout his praise with joy. Let's uh, just bow before God and meditate on these words.